Our first scripture reading this morning is from the prophet Jeremiah, verse, I mean, sorry, chapter 33, verse 14, and it will go all the way to 16. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which they shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The word of God for the people of God. A scripture reading from 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through 13. Paul writes, How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. The word of God for the people of God. Our gospel text this morning. It's from the Gospel of Luke. In the first chapter, verse 5, and we're going all the way to verse 23. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all of the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once he was serving as priest before God, and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at that time, or now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be, a great, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people are waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. 
and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service is ended, he went to his home. The word of God for the people of God. So everybody knows when they're filming a movie or a TV show, they, sh they film at, what's the word for the place that they film stuff? A set. So they film at a set, right? A set is a space that's either cordoned off or built for the, the, the filming of this scene of a TV show or a movie. More often than not, there are multiple, even dozens of sets for a film, and sometimes even for a TV episode. You've got to have that many spaces for the characters to go and for the action to take place. But when they're making TV shows and they have to make a bunch of them, you know, and most of the time it's a 22, 23 uh, episode order for a season, uh, the budget is such where sometimes they need to not use that many sets. They need to recycle what they already have. Uh, this, in the, the, the lingo, is referred to as a bottle episode. And I always thought it was because it kind of took place in a, in a single spot, so it was kind of like it was in a bottle. But most of the time, it's because the money has bottlenecked that episode, and so they have to stick to a place they've already built, especially if it's like one of those shows where they have like a default space, like an apartment, and they just stay in that spot the whole time. Uh, or um, they even make sure that it's only the main cast that they pay per episode anyway, or even just a portion of the main cast. This keeps production's costs down, but it makes it to where you can normally spot these episodes. You could, If you think about some of your favorite shows, without even realizing that you're watching a bottle episode, you can think about it and realize it. Some of my favorite episodes of TV are bottle episodes, though. Like, there was the episode of Breaking Bad called The Fly, where two guys are stuck in a lab and have to find a single fly. And so it's just one space, two guys, 40 minutes trying to find one bug, but it is probably one of the best hours of TV you will ever watch. Um, or my favorite show of all time is a show called Community, set in a community college. This whole episode, they literally lock a study group into a study room so until they can figure out who is stealing one of the students' pens. It's a whole episode where they're arguing over who is stealing these fancy pens. It turns out it was a monkey that was let loose in the ven ventilation system. Um, I'm sorry to spoil that episode for you, but it, great TV. I say all that to say that when we think about the nativity story, we kind of think of a bottle episode. We think of the, the, you know, the silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, one spot, Jesus, Mary, Joseph in a manger. They could probably make it pretty cheap if they just stuck to the cow and the sheep. Just a single cow and a single sheep. You only have to have one guy there to watch after him. It makes, you know, setting up the whole thing kind of easy. I think about that uh, yesterday. I thought about it yesterday when I was setting, when we were setting up for our Christmas stuff at our house. Uh, when Alicia bought a new nativity scene and brought it in, set it up, took a picture of it and sent it to her family. Uh, and she said, here's our new nativity. Uh, for, forgive the fact that there's not a crush behind it. Because it was just the, just like this one, it was just the people. There wasn't a crush behind it. And uh, Alicia's sister says, crush? What do you mean crush? And Alicia just responds, because this is how they normally talk to each other, Jesus house. And so they immediately understood. But because the setting of the story fades into the background so much, 
we can just see the people and understand exactly what we're talking about. We don't have to focus on the setting at all. But there's so much more to the nativity story than that space. The nativity story isn't a bottle episode. It is different places, different people coming together to make this huge story. And so this Advent season, we want to kind of focus on the settings that make this story. We want to focus on the places that make the nativity story possible. Yeah, it's going to end up, spoiler alert, it will end up in a manger. But there's a lot more to see. And so our text today sends us to our first location, to the temple. Now, I know a couple of weeks ago, I stood up here and told you that the temple was broken. And I'm sorry, but today we're going to talk about ways the temple isn't broken. So if y'all could just forgive pessimistic two weeks ago, Corey, and pay attention to right now, Corey, I'd appreciate it. Because especially in the understanding of Advent, we can understand how this temple life, when done right, can, can help us to live a life of Advent. It can help us to live a life of anticipation of our coming Savior. And it can allow us to live a life fitting of the calling that God has for us. And we're looking at that through the life of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is one of the good ones. Him and his wife, Elizabeth, are older. I love the fact that in the NRSV, it keeps saying getting on in years. I thought that was a euphemism, but it seems like not in this case. And I love the fact that when he's talking to the angel, he says, I'm old. My wife is getting on in years. You know what I'm saying? It's like he knows that I'm not going to call her old. It's going to get me in a lot of trouble. Even when he's talking to an angel. That's, that's, that, that's how much of one of the good ones Zechariah is. He's protecting his wife even when talking to Gabriel of all people. So they have their religious life figured out. And they're probably pretty happy, except for that one asterisk. That asterisk that keeps coming up in all these Bible stories. Oh, it's a happy old couple. They never had any kids. Oh, it's a happy old couple. They never had any kids. That whole we wish we had a kid thing keeps coming up in Scripture. So Zechariah is a priest. And the way this works, priests are split up into different divisions, 24 different divisions. This was split up in First Chronicles. Uh, so you can go back in the Old Testament and read about it if you want a good reason to take a nap. And these divisions take turns working the temple. And it, the day of the story, Zechariah's division is working, right? So already there's a 1 in 24 chance that he's even there that day. And someone has to go light incense in the temple. And they don't just go on order, okay, so today is Z day. So Zechariah, you're up. No, they, they draw lots. There's a chance that Zechariah would never do this. This is just a random chance. His name comes up. Now put yourself in Zechariah's shoes for a minute. I don't, we don't know how many people are in his division, but we can kind of assume that it's a lot. Maybe a hundred or more. He probably had no intention of walking into any real holy places today. He thought he was going to work, he was going to pray a little bit, he was going to go home. You're old, you're tired, you're surrounded by other priests, some of which might be younger and kind of chomping at the bit to go into the holy place. But you're called to go light the incense. You leave behind the other priests who are all in prayer as you walk in. 
You're walking into a place that's understood to be God's and God's alone. That throughout history, generations of priests before you, whether it was at the tabernacle or at the first temple or now here at the second temple, have gone in alone with the fear and trembling at the divine so intense. You know, there's the stories of them having to tie rope to the guy's ankle when he goes in there because only one guy can go in there. So if, you know, he drops dead because God smote him, they have to pull him out. Um, This whole fear of what is happening, filling you up. You walk through that veil that separates God's place from the place of everyone else. Immediately the temperature drops just because of how sunlight hasn't touched this place. You can smell that that deep but also faint smell of incense that has gone out, that smell that kind of permeates everything. You can't help but feel the weight of the ritual, the weight of what you're doing, the fact that this isn't just something that is happening today. It is something that has happened for years and for years and for years, but only so many people have been able to do it. The smell of the incense is so intense that you, you, for a moment you think there might be someone in there with you. Now, you know that's not supposed to be the case, so surely you must be delusional. But the more that you come to your senses and the more you realize that what you're seeing is there, you start kind of freaking out. This, the, the already the, the, the fear and intensity that you were feeling as you walked in just doubles and triples And you're startled, you're frightened when this person starts talking to you. Telling you that you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. You're going to have so much joy. This guy's not going to drink any wine for some reason. It's going to be awesome. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you're dumbstruck. You're just amazed at this conversation that you're suddenly having with an angel. You're confused. You're elated. You're in awe. But you're an older guy. You've been around the block a few times. You know that this isn't normally how this works. So you do the thing that any person in their right mind would do. You ask a question. You say, how could this be so? What does the angel say? You want proof? How about I give you some proof? For the next nine months, at least, no talking from you. Nobody's going to hear anything. So you were dumbstruck, and now you're struck dumb. God has worked so mightily in your life that you are now unable to say a word. We can look at Zechariah's inability to speak and say, that's what he gets, because he asked a question, right? That's kind of the, the, the gist of it. But we could also look at it and say, this is so amazing. This is so out of, expe- out of the expected order of things that Zechariah didn't know how to respond. Zechariah had long-term loss of words. And it's, I mean, y'all know how pregnancy works. He would know something's up pretty quick, but it's not until John shows up that he speaks again. Zechariah had an encounter with God so intense, his whole life changed. Zechariah got close to God, and Zechariah's life changed. That much there is no doubt. But how does that help us today? We don't draw lots, and one of us doesn't go into a separate room where God lives. There's not 
a lottery to determine who can have a face-to-face experience with the Lord. Only one of our number doesn't get a chance to brush up to the divine on a daily basis. Luckily, though, that's not how it works now. As you go along in the gospel story, we realize that veil that Zechariah walked through was torn in half and that the divine no longer has a separate space but is rather here and now and with us. The separation that keeps an encounter with God locked away vanished. And we can encounter God anytime, anywhere, with anyone. God's sanctuary is now our world. And just as John is filled with the Holy Spirit after Zechariah's encounter, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. God dwells not just among us, but in us and with us and through us. God's sanctuary is here now, and God is ready to give us a moment of awe that will change our lives for forever. As we prepare ourselves for this season, for for Christmas, for the coming year, I pray we are open to these moments. Those things that can happen in our lives that God can use to derail our presuppositions, to interrupt our regularly scheduled program, to step into our lives in ways only God can. You see, sanctuary isn't just a space where we meet God. In the medieval times, the concept of sanctuary was a legal understanding of sanctuary, that the place where church takes place is so holy that regularly scheduled life doesn't happen there, to the point where if you are committed of a crime, if you've committed a crime, if you go to sanctuary, you can claim sanctuary. They can't come and get you. You are free, as, I mean, as long as you keep staying at the, the church. Just don't leave, and you're good. So how often you hear of folks in that time who, uh, in fleeing justice, I guess you could say, just commit their entire lives to the church. So anyone seeking safety, even from the law, could find it in the walls of the church. They could find a place of peace. When I think about Zechariah's experience in God's sanctuary, I can't help but think about this experience, this definition of sanctuary as well. Zechariah might have been scared, but the angel says, don't be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. This is a good thing. It's easy for us to look at what happens to Zechariah and see the muteness, but not think about the fact that the thorn in this man and his wife's entire life for them has been resolved by God. Even as he walks out unable to speak, God is providing him the gift of listening, of learning, and growing in this time. God's got Zechariah, and God's doing wonderful things through him. God has us as well as we live through what it means to be in God's sanctuary at this time. But it was different for Zechariah in that little space reserved for God. God might have been there, but Zechariah still entered alone. Zechariah's safety was in God's hand alone. You see, the medieval understanding of places of worship being a place of safety came in part from the people of the church being the sanctuary. The place of worship was set aside by the priests and the people worshiping there, yes. It wasn't set aside by the state, 
but it's the people who protected those who came to them that allowed that to continue to be the case. Folks came together to stand for one another. Now, I think about this particularly with a specific story that's going on right now. I don't know if anybody's heard this on the news, but there's a, a church in the Netherlands that has this specific thing going on. There's a rule in the Netherlands that says that, uh, that legal action can't take place in a place of worship while a worship service is going on. But there's a family that is about to be deported to Armenia in the Netherlands. And they came to this church the church said that this was unjust. And so the church took to having service. And y'all, they started that church service on October 26th. Today is the 1st of December. And as of last night, that service is still going on. They haven't quit. They're taking shifts. There are pastors from all over the Netherlands. There are pastors from Germany, from England, from France that are coming in specifically to continue the service already in progress. And so this family who are seeking political asylum are just hanging out in that church until something comes of it. So what is that? When I saw it, it still said more than 800 hours of church service. So from what I understand, I think, uh, Chuck, they're about halfway through Leviticus. I know, right? That's, That's the comfy pews. That's what you need. What's that? Did you say it's not the Netherlands? Okay. Okay. You got me scared. The church is becoming a literal sanctuary for that family in that moment. But all this makes me think of something that I think of more often than not, especially in the fact that I've been reading it to Eden for a little while, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In this story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the kids says, I've never met a lion before. Is he safe? Talking of Aslan. And Mr. Beaver says, who's an actual beaver, for anybody who hasn't read the story, he says, oh, Aslan isn't safe, but he's good. You know, we can talk about sanctuary as a place of safety, and it is, but it is more so a place of peace. It is more so a place of goodness. Because God isn't safe, but God is good. We might walk away from God being unable to speak for nine months, but we will walk away from God better. We will walk away from being in a good place. It might be a hard place, but it's a good place. A place free of outside troubles, but a place not free of inside issues being worked out. A place where we can prepare for what God has for us. We can prepare ourselves because when God is everywhere, The sanctuary is us. So as we begin this Advent season, let us make this place a sanctuary, but also let us make this place a sanctuary. Let us make this place a place where we can meet God face to face, where strangers can meet God face to face, but also allow the love of Christ to transform us in such a way to where God can work in us and through us. From there, let us carry peace out into the world because God's not contained to a building anymore. God's not contained behind a veil or in an ark. 
There's no veil. God's sanctuary is in us just as much as it was in that musty sanctuary 2,000 years ago. So go be the sanctuary for someone today. Let's all pray.